Bibles, if you would please, to Revelation chapter 19. And it's almost with a sense of relief that we finally make it to this 19th chapter. Uh, we have three chapters to go before we finish our study in Revelation. And we're at a point here in the book where the tone really changes. Uh, for these many months now, we've been taking a walk through the tribulation period. And as we all know, that's a time that's characterized by wickedness and there are terrible judgments of God that come upon the earth. And that tribulation time is the time that the Antichrist kingdom is being built up. It's a time when there is evil that's rampant upon the earth and live, men live to the depths of the depravity of their heart. If anyone ever wanted to know what would happen if God were to remove all the restraints of our inherent depravity, all that you need to do is to read these chapters in the book of Revelation. And there it shows us how horrible that our hearts really are. There are some people that would argue that deep down in, inside of even the worst men that there's goodness there, that all that um, you really need to do is fan what they call a spark of divinity that lies within man. And if you'll do that, if you'll put man in the right environment, if you'll get him under the right conditions, that he will be helpful and he'll be loving and considerate and he'll do his very best to make the world a better place. When we were going through our study of Philippians, I, I mentioned the little Jewish girl, uh, Anne Frank, who was hiding out from the Nazis in Amsterdam during World War II. And uh, she, she and her family were betrayed and discovered as they were in hiding. And they took Anne Frank and her family to a concentration camp, and Anne later died. But they found her diary after uh, she had died, and there was one line in her diary that I thought that was really interesting. She said, I still believe that in spite of everything, people are really good at heart. Now, Anne Frank had seen a lot of terrible things happen, but she did maintain her faith in humanity. And the Bible also tells us that we can have faith in humanity, and that is we trust humanity to be always consistent in one thing, we hate God. That's the way it is with every single person. We hate God. The Bible says that our hearts are only evil continually. And Anne Frank lived at a time when she saw the reign of a madman. And most of the world resisted him because that's what God does for us. He helps us to keep from destroying ourselves. But there's coming a time when there's a, a man that will rise to power and God will remove all the restraints upon men. And when this man comes to power, people will not resist him. They will follow him because he gives them their, grace, their greatest desires. They live in a kingdom called Babylon, and Babylon feeds the materialistic hunger of people. So heart, soul, mind, and body are all given to Babylon. So what we have there then is proof of what man really is, that man is not really good at heart. Uh, and God doesn't really need to prove anything to us. God acts according to his own standards. He does everything in his own will. The word of God says that he controls the inhabitants of the earth. He controls all the armies of the world. Everything is under God's control. But lest someone think that they have the right to accuse God and say that his judgments are not right, that God acts unjustly, God gives us a preview. He gives us the book of Revelation, and he shows us what will happen to us when men are allowed to play out the worst of their hearts when they're turned loose to do exactly as they choose to do. Now, some people think that God put man on earth, and 
And then he sat back and he watched what man would do. And then God decided what he would do based upon what men would do. So God is a reactionary God. Now, anyone who stands or understands prophecy would have to reject that because the existence of prophecy really counteracts such a belief. I mean, does God foresee what man will do, and then God foresees his own actions and what he will do in response? Well, that that idea would be preposterous, and yet those who do not believe in the sovereignty of God are stuck in a system like that. Well, here we see, as we go through the Word of God, we see the remarkable plan of God unfolding. From day number one, when uh, God put man in the Garden of Eden, God intended to move man towards this event that happens in chapter 19. All men were created for this purpose, and that's the coming of Christ the King. He's coming to this earth to take charge of it because he rules the world. Now, heaven and earth is God's domain. He rules in heaven now, and so what Christ is going to do, he's going to come and he's going to bring his righteous kingdom to the earth. Now, before that happens, and that begins being foretold in verse number 11 of chapter 19. But before that happens, heaven is open, and John is allowed to see there, to see heaven's reaction to the events of Revelation 17 and 18. Now, if you look in Revelation chapter 19, verse number 1, it says, And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Chapters 17 and 18 are a parenthetical section in Revelation. When we ended chapter 16, there was the seventh vial of God's wrath that had been poured out, and that was the last of uh, the plagues that God would bring upon the earth in order to bring the world into submission at the end of the Great Tribulation. And then in the 19th chapter, we have a dividing line, and this is the connector between the Tribulation period and the time that the righteous kingdom of God begins upon the earth. Now, let me remind you of this again, that the pinnacle point of redemption is the second coming of Christ. And all the things that we've been speaking about for the past two years, everything that we've talked about in Revelation is a part of the second coming of Christ. And the first part of it begins when Christ appears in the air and he calls his people out of this world. He calls the church out of this world, the dead in Christ to rise. And those that are living have their bodies transformed, uh, made into a glorious body, and then they're taken into heaven. And that's what we call the first phase of the second coming. And at that time, Christ does not set his foot upon the earth. It's actually seven years before that happens. And when we get to chapter or verse number 11 in chapter 19, those seven years of waiting are over, and Christ comes to this earth riding upon a white horse, and all the armies of heaven... 
uh, including uh, men that are there that have died and, and have gone into heaven. They'll come back with him and, and the angelic hosts of heaven, they will come. And that is the second phase of Christ's coming. And that is when he actually establishes the kingdom upon the earth. So the rapture is not the greatest event in world history. Now, of course, that's what we're waiting to see happen. We're looking forward to that. But many people think about the rapture, and, the, and they don't get much beyond that. Well, heaven wants to see the rapture also, but they want to see the rapture because then the rapture will bring on the world's greatest event. Heaven is looking for a greater event, a event and that's the vengeance of God and the coming of Christ's kingdom to the earth. So what heaven is looking for then is unification. Heaven is looking for all of heaven and earth to become one. Heaven is look, looking for the lifting of the curse and the reversal of everything that was lost in the fall of man. Heaven is looking for uh, the end of sickness and of pain. It's looking for the end of anger and of arguing, the end of thorns and thistles. In short, heaven is looking for the end of sin. And all of redemptive history is moving towards that event when Jesus gave the model prayer in Matthew chapter 6, he said for us to pray in this way, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And this is the time when what is done in heaven will be done upon the earth because this is when Christ takes his position of the reigning authority over all creatures in heaven and earth. Now before that happens though, we have this glorious scene of rejoicing in heaven. Now in the last message, we got a glimpse of this. And, and this message is really just a greater development of the last point of the last message. And so there's this rejoicing in heaven. This is heaven's reaction over the destruction of the world's, uh, world's uh, corrupt system. And so this is heaven rejoicing over the fall of Babylon, the Antichrist kingdom. Now what we see here then are two starkly different, different pictures. On, on the one hand, we had Babylon bewailed, uh, all of the people of the world uh, are mourning over the loss of their great city. And that's because Babylon represented everything to them. Babylon was their hope. People lived for Babylon. Babylon was a place of, or it will be a place of selfish sensuality. And Babylon, the center of attention is man. And Babylon, the center of affection is man. And Babylon, the highest order, is man's thinking. So it's all about self-gratification. It's all about meeting the felt needs of men. Now, it's remarkable that we see in uh, chapter 17 that even religion supports that. The apostate religion of Babylon that we find in chapter 17 has the same sensuality and the same man-centeredness that you find in chapter 18 in the economic kingdom. Now, what's happening in the world today is that the world is capitalizing on this, and it's actually moving towards that self-fulfilling prophecy. Religion is perfectly described in the words of Robert Schuller, who said, classic theology has erred in being God-centered rather than man-centered. And so what we find here in this 19th chapter is rejoicing over that kind of heretical thinking. Now, the earth mourns because the man-god in Babylon has been obliterated. So they weep and they wail because they know the inevitable is coming. Christ is coming, and Christ is not going to put up with a world that has man at the center. This earth was created for the glory of God, and you can be assured of this, that God will receive his glory. Now, I think it's interesting that 
preachers say, well, God has given you free will, and God wants you to love him uh, because you want to. God wants you to love him because you want to, not because you're forced to. And they're totally confused about this because they don't understand what the natural man is actually willing to do. The Bible says that man is never going to love God. We're always against God. So man of his own free will, left in the state that is, he will never love God. And so they're also ignorant of what God does in regeneration. The psalmist said in Psalm 110, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. And then John wrote in uh, John chapter 1, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. But that be as it may, uh, what would these people think about this scene in heaven where all of man's tenderness is destroyed? So what do they think that happens when God uh, promised that he would come and rule the world with a rod of iron? If people don't want their free will infringed upon now, how vociferous do you think their complaint will be at that time? Well, here, heaven is rejoicing because of the destruction of Babylon. All heaven is shouting hallelujah because God's vengeance has wreaked havoc on the world. So we're going to look at this. There are hallelujahs in heaven, and there's a hallelujah chorus that's being sung, sung, and the reason for this singing may be dubious to some people. It might not look like this is quite right. Not in man's thinking it's not right, but this is righteous. This is the right kind of rejoicing, and it's actually rejoicing over the broken backs of men and their system. Now, I want to start uh, with this. Uh, The first two hallelujahs flip man's thinking upside down. Now, these hallelujahs are not consistent with, consistent with a God of tolerance. It's not co, uh, consistent with a God that lives in peaceful coexistence with all creatures. This is not the God who never met a deviant that he didn't like. And this is all that we're going to get tonight as far as we're going to go, and that's number one, the severe hallelujahs. The severe hallelujahs. There are four hallelujahs in the first six verses, and the first two fall under the heading severe hallelujahs. Now, before I go any further, I want you to understand what hallelujah means. Now, in our text, we see alleluia, but I suppose that Handel thought it was easier to write the hallelujah chorus rather than the alleluia chorus. And, uh, but those words actually mean the same thing. Alleluia and hallelujah are the same. Alleluia is just the Greek form. It's a a transliteration of a Greek word that is the same as the Hebrew word, hallelujah. And the word simply means praise the Lord. It's a combination of two Hebrew words, hallel, which means praise, and the second part of that is yah, J-A-H, which is a shortened form of the name for God. And so you put that together and you get praise Yahweh or praise the Lord. Well, there are four of these in these verses, and when you put all of these together, you find that all of heaven, all creatures in heaven are in this massive course in which they have one central theme, praise the Lord. And they praise him for his magnificence, for his might, for his justice, for his sovereignty, for his supremacy. And here in these first two, we find praise the Lord for his vengeance. Praise the Lord for his righteous judgment that comes upon the earth. 
Now we look in verse number 1. It says, And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with their fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia. And her smoke rose up forever and ever. These are the severe hallelujahs. And when you consider who's doing the singing, you'll understand why it is that they rejoice at God's judgment. And the ones that we find singing here are described in the seventh chapter. Now I want you to turn back a few pages to chapter 7 and we'll see who these are. Uh, Chapter 19 says, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven. So who are the people in heaven that say the hallelujahs? Where we find that, these particular hallelujahs, and we find that in chapter 7, beginning in verse number 9. Revelation 7, verse 9. After this I beheld, lo, a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with right robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and which came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Who are they? These are they which came out of great tribulation. Now you wonder why they praise God? They've come out of great tribulation. These are the martyrs. These are millions of people who gave their lives. They were put to death under the horrible reign of the Antichrist. So they were mercilessly slaughtered because what they would not do, they would not receive the mark of his name, they would not receive his number. And so as the smoke of Babylon ascends, they praise God because this, this kingdom that has corrupted the earth has been judged. And so they praise him also because their blood has been avenged and this is the fulfillment of God's prophecy for them. Now one thing the word of God says, it says we cannot avenge our enemies now. We're not allowed to to do anything to our enemies. So we take their beatings, we take the insults, we, we take the rejection of the world because God says that vengeance is mine. And there's coming that day when God will have his vengeance. Now we notice then in the first verse the causes of the rejoicing. And the first is salvation. The cause of rejoicing is salvation. And this salvation is final deliverance. Now, we're not talking here about the salvation of their souls. Uh, That would 
also be a cause of rejoicing. If you've been saved from hell, that's certainly a cause for rejoicing. But this salvation is not that kind of salvation. This salvation is the final deliverance. This is the moment that the world is, is delivered from that foul curse of sin that, that's plagued God's people for so long. In the scriptures, deliverance is cause for rejoicing. There are actually particular sections of the Psalms that deal with this, and these are called the Hallel. And, of course, that comes from Hallelujah. Listen to, listen to the ending of Psalm 104. This is part of that section of the Psalms. Let sinners, let the sinners be consumed out of the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless thou the Lord, O my soul. Praise ye the Lord. Does that sound familiar? Sounds just like what we're reading in, in chapter 19. The same thing that the saints in chapter uh, or uh, chapter 19 in Revelation are singing about. Now the next psalm, Psalm 105, ends with hallelujah. Praise ye the Lord. So it says hallelujah. And if you read that whole psalm, it concentrates on the deliverance of God's people. Psalm 106 begins with praise ye the Lord. And it ends with praise ye the Lord. So hallelujah on one end, hallelujah on the other end. And so you look through these psalms and you find the hallelujahs. Psalm 107 is about deliverance from transgressions, deliverance from storms, deliverance from oppressions and afflictions and sorrow, according to verse number 39. So those are the hallels, the hallelujahs, the praise ye the Lord. Now where does all of that come from? Where do these things that we need to be delivered from come from? The oppression, the affliction, the sorrow. Well, sin is its origin. Sin is the root of all of our miseries. And when you get saved, you get delivered from the condemnation of sin. But what happens is you don't get delivered from the presence of sin. Sin is still in you. Uh, Sin still plagues you. Its effects are still in you. Even if you don't sin, the effects of sin are still in you because you get sick. Uh, you, You feel pain. You get tempted. And the presence of sin in those that have not trusted in Christ means that you also become their enemies. Jesus said that the world will hate you. And so we are uncomfortable living as Christians in the presence of sin. Some of you have to work with that every day. And I thank the Lord that I work here in the church and I'm not confronted too much with uh, people that are committing a lot of sin. I could name some names for you, but I I won't do that. I'll tell you the ones I'm keeping my eye on around here. But uh, for the most part, I, I don't have to deal with sin in the workplace, a lot of things that are going on, but you do. You have to work around it every day, and you desire to be delivered from that. You know, I remember when uh, Bill Burge was here, and he was getting ready to leave, and he said, you know, I'm just sick and tired of this. He said, I'm sick and tired of working in San Francisco and have to live and work among all those homosexuals and the preferential treatment that they receive. See, God's people get tired of this. We have to live in a world of sin, and there's this constant struggle that we have with this, and we want to get out of it, and we want to live in a world that's ruled by righteousness. So we want to be delivered from the constant foul pollution of sin. This is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. 
For we that are in this tabernacle, and there he means our flesh, in this body, for we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. So we groan to be delivered. Then he also wrote in Romans chapter 13, and that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Our salvation is nearer. Now, he's not talking about soul salvation, because when you get saved, you are immediately delivered from sin. So this is not soul salvation. Our salvation is nearer than when we believe. That means that every day that we live, we're getting closer and closer to the time when we will finally be delivered from the presence of sin. That'll be gone. And so these martyred saints that are in heaven, they sing hallelujah because Babylon falls. And not only is the world brought nearer to the time of deliverance, but the world is right at the time when God is finally going to purge it all of sin. And so they sing hallelujah because deliverance has come. Now, the next word that we see there is the word glory. And this stands for the moral authority of God. Salvation and glory and honor. God has the moral authority to execute judgment. Now, the hallels that we find in the book of Psalms also uh, have something to do with God's judgment on sin. God is just when he condemns the wicked. He's just when he brings vengeance upon them. And why is that so? Because his law has to be upheld. Now listen to this statement and make sure you understand this. The law does not give God his moral authority. The law does not give God his moral authority. God is the one who gives authority to the law. Now Revelation 19.2 says, For true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. True and righteous are his judgments. So however God chooses to respond to this, his way of doing things is always right. And the saints that are in heaven acknowledge this, and they praise God for what he does. You see, when you challenge God's law... It's not a document carved in stone that you challenge. When the Supreme Court uh, upholds abortion rights and they uphold the activities of every sexual deviant that you can think of, and when our state thinks about legalizing marijuana and there are other states that legalize prostitution and legalize gambling, they're not challenging a stone document. They're challenging the moral authority of God. And when God is challenged... He doesn't have the right to respond or doesn't take the right to respond. He has the right to respond. This is God's law. Now, that law in God is an inherent right, and God is the moral judge of the universe. And it really doesn't matter what we think. It doesn't matter what you've imagined God to be because God is not any different than what he has revealed in his word. Everything that we know about God comes from the Bible. You're reading it here. And our Bible says that God takes vengeance. And so is it wrong then for people who have submitted to the authority of God would think that his judgment is not right and that judge, God can judge, administer his justice any way that he wants? It is, is it heartless and cruel for us to praise God because he's decided that he will take that authority and exercise it upon the earth and that he will punish ungodly men? And is it wrong for his justice to move swiftly if he chooses to do so? Is it wrong that God finally breaks the back of sinful men 
You know what Paul said to that? Who art thou that repliest against God? Who has the authority to punish the wicked? And for God not to do it is to deny his own moral authority. But we notice something about God, something that ought to really thrill our hearts, and that is that though God has the right to crush every human being like a bug, he has the right to do that. He does not delight in doing it. Now, he delights in the satisfaction of his justice, but he doesn't delight in the act of death. Because death is not what God created us for. Death is the result of sin. And so if God were to rejoice in death for the sake of death, then he would rejoice in sin and the effects of sin. And the word of God says that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, and neither do the saints in heaven. Uh, they, They don't want to see death for death's sake, but what they delight in is the justice of God because God's justice actually removes all of the obstacles that prevent the righteous reign of God upon the earth. And who and what are those obstacles? Well, the obstacle, of course, is sin, and the who is wicked men that practice sin, the wicked men of Babylon. And you see that Babylon's not just a city. Uh, buildings and, and walls are not sinful. Streets and houses and cars and jewels and clothing and gold, those things aren't sinful. The sinfulness of Babylon is the people in whom it resides. And so the destruction of Babylon has to include the destruction of these wicked, sinful men. And that's why heaven shouts, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. And so when justice is served, sinful men are punished. When everything that is opposed to the righteousness of God is removed, then Christ is exalted. Now, throughout the tribulation period, men stubbornly resisted God, as they always have, and that's not something new. Uh, The resistance of those people against God is not something new to us. This has been going on all the time, all throughout Earth's history. From the very first time that bite was taken from the forbidden fruit, men have stood against God. So wickedness has steadily grown. It keeps on, and it keeps on, and it keeps on. And one day the wickedness of men will be piled so high that we'll see happen what it says in Revelation 18, verse number 5. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. And this is what we see. This is God remembering the iniquity. So he exercises moral authority. His right to judge is upheld, and so his glory overcomes them. God's honor is no longer besmirched. All men are forced to bow to him regardless of their will. Now, thirdly, is the word power, God's power. And this shows his judgmental might. What we have here are not idle threats. This, this is not a prediction of what could happen. See, God's not the parent who threatens punishment, and then he lets the little brat get away with it anyway. I mean, you know, you know what's really sickening? What's really sickening is they have a parent with a child yell at them, I hate you. For a child to say to a parent, I hate you. And then for that parent to turn around and act like they are totally helpless to do any discipline to that child. You know, a few weeks ago, I was um, standing at my kitchen window, and there were some teenagers that live across the street from me, and they were standing out in the yard yelling at the top of their lungs, I hate you. That's what they were saying to their mother. Now, when they're teenagers, they're difficult to deal with at that time, but they weren't always teenagers. 
And I promise you this, if you let those little children talk back to you and you don't do anything about it and you don't punish them, they're not going to turn around and respect you when they get older. See, God doesn't like wimpy, helpless parents, and he's not like that himself. So these men say, I hate you, God, and all rebellion, all sin, that's what that is. That's men saying, I hate you, God. Jesus gave that parable of the nobleman in Luke chapter 19, and he spoke of this man who went away into a far country to receive his kingdom. Now, interestingly there, Jesus was talking about himself, and he was saying, I'm going to go, out, go away to heaven, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to bring my righteous kingdom with me. And while the nobleman was gone, he gave his servants their hire, and he told them to occupy until he came. And those servants were the disciples. They're, they're the prophets. But when they came to the people and told them about the righteous king, they refused to listen. They hated the king. And so they sent word back with the servants to this effect, we will not have this man to reign over us. Now Jesus' parable was specifically given to the Jews. They rejected him when he came. And Jesus told them, he said, there's going to be an everlasting kingdom. He's coming to rule in righteousness. And the Jews said to Jesus, we will not have you to reign over us. Well, in the time of tribulation, the story is going to be the same. There'll be thousands of witnesses that are sent. Those two witnesses that we find in chapter 11. Then chapter 14 tells us about the angel that uh, preaches the everlasting gospel over the entire earth. And they tell people, Christ, the Savior, the King is coming. He's going to rule in righteousness. And you know what they say? We will not have this man to reign over us. And so God has given every opportunity. But you see what their free will does? Their free will doesn't bring them one inch closer to receiving Christ as the king. So what do you think that he does? They say, we will not have this man to reign over us. And so he says, they don't want me? I am so disappointed. I mean, I'm powerless to do anything about this. You know, as some preacher would say, well, God's done everything he can do. Now it's up to you. Man, they never read the book of Revelation, did they? You've never seen the end of what God can do. I mean, puny preacher, I mean, to think that, that God is powerless because of a man's rebellion? That's what you think? You've got another thing coming. They say, we will not have this man to reign over us. And you know what God does? God just cracks the whip. What we have here is the cosmic Jesus, the one that goes into the temple and turns over the tables of the money changers and drives them out. You haven't seen the end of what God can do. He will reign over them. He's not helpless. He's the power that rules the universe. He's before all things. And as we read this morning, by him all things consist. So don't you ever think that God's reached his limit and God can do no more. He will reign over us. Now let me distill that information for you in case you've missed my point here and my intent. And that is that man's heart is stubbornly against God. His neck is stiff against God. His mind is corrupt. And God did not send Christ into the world on the off chance that you might believe in him. And he didn't put him on the cross and... and uh, uh, say, I, I, I don't know what you're going to do here. Uh, I sure wish that you would believe in my son. God conquers the will of man. God brings men into subjection. He didn't make a sacrifice that you can resist. He didn't give you the power yourself to make that sacrifice effectual or ineffectual by what you do. 
Christ has the power to save whom he will, and he saves whom he will. Now, folks, that's the spiritual application of salvation and glory and honor and power under the Lord our God. Now, I hope that truth is very clear in your understanding. Don't ever let those words fall from your lips. God has done all that he can do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the time that we spend together tonight. We thank you, Lord, for these hallelujahs that we see. And though men may not understand it, it doesn't seem right for God to do what he wants to do. We know, Lord, you are the ruler of heaven and earth. You control all things. And we can do nothing but bow, submit ourselves to you, because you will reign over us. Bless your people tonight, Lord. We thank you for each one who's here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.